If you need help getting Social Security Disability Benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security Disability Lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Why is it so difficult to win Social Security Disability Benefits? A few weeks ago, I sat down with a recently retired Social Security attorney, advisor, and author named Spencer Bishens to discuss his perspective about the disability system. Spencer does not mince words. As you will learn, he believes that the Social Security disability system is designed to discourage claimants from pursuing benefits and to make it extremely difficult for claimants to win. But... Spencer also tells me that for every roadblock SSA puts in your way, there is a solution. In in our interview, he reveals to me what his years of working side-by-side with administrative law judges has taught him about what it takes to win. Normally, my podcast interviews last about 20 to 30 minutes, but Spencer had too much to say, so I decided not to limit our our discussion to just one episode. This is part one of a three-part series well, you, you will hear from a true insider about what goes on behind the scenes at, social, at a Social Security Disability Hearing Office. I will tell you that after speaking with Spencer, I have changed my hearing preparation procedures, and I think you will find our discussion fascinating. I also want to recommend that you pick up a copy of Spencer's new book, which is entitled Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. Links to the book are in the show notes. Trust me when I tell you that Spencer's book is essential reading for any Social Security Disability attorney or disability claimant. So now, here is part one of my interview with Spencer Bishens. And I'm going to welcome today Spencer Bishens. Uh, Spencer is a former Social Security employee who's written a very intriguing book about the Social Security disability process. We're going to ask him some questions about what he observed during his career with Social Security, why he wrote the book, and some of the substantive issues that arise in Social Security disability cases. So, Spencer, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, let's start off by giving our our audience a little bit about you. Tell me about your background. I understand you work for Social Security. Uh, Give me a little bit of a background about yourself and what you've done uh, in your career. I did. I joined Social Security in 2010. I started off at the Appeals Council in Falls Church, Virginia, uh, and I was there almost four years. And during that time, I reviewed actually a few thousand uh, cases of appeal. Um, and the decision's already written. You can actually review them quite quickly. And then uh, in 2014, I transferred to the hearing level and became an attorney advisor decision writer in the Tacoma, Washington hearing office, where I wrote almost 2,000 decisions for administrative law judges. Okay. Um, And so you're working directly with the judges, and we'll talk about kind of how that process worked. But so you've actually seen and and really listened to 
uh, sounds like thousands of hearing recordings. You know, as, as people may know, uh, the, the hearing office does record all the hearings. And what's interesting about this process, again, if you don't know, the judges who hear the case, they don't actually write the decision. They send it out to somebody else to write it. Exactly. And you were one of those people. That's right. They send it to staff attorneys. Uh, most hearing offices have their own staff attorneys. Sometimes it will get out to an office could be on the other side of the country. Yep. Um, but but I, I wrote decisions for probably a couple dozen administrative law judges, and I worked with a couple dozen administrative appeal judges as well at the appeal council. So I have a pretty good idea of how the judges make decisions and what they think about when they're deciding the case, when they're in the hearing, and when they're being ready to issue the decision afterwards. Okay. Well, tell me about the book. Now, you've written a book, and, and why? Did, first of all, why did you decide to write a book? And uh, give me a sense of what the book is about, if you could. Yeah, when I left Social Security uh, in 2021, I had a lot on my mind, uh, as you can imagine. Um, I had a lot of conversations with administrative law judges in their offices, and during the pandemic, a lot of that was over the phone or by email. But the judges say a lot of things behind closed doors uh, about claimants, about evidence, about cases, and about the process. And the way the decision writers uh, operate, the way management manages the caseload, the way cases are assigned, um, a lot of that actually impacts the decisions far more than the claimants or the representatives know. Hmm. And so I wanted to make sure that people had this information um, I wanted to make sure people understood how the process works, the, the public information, differences between the programs, the sequential evaluation, but also then what happens after you're hearing? What is the interaction between the decision writer and the judge? How do they make the decisions? How do judges get around certain rules, like the grid rule, they really want to deny a claim? And if the judge and the decision writer disagree, how might that then impact the language that goes into the decision? So I had all of this information and knowledge, and I wanted to get it out there for the public and for representatives such as yourself to really understand how the decision-making and decision-writing process works after the hearing is concluded. Okay. Now, one of the things when we had a little brief conversation before our recording today, and you made a very interesting comment to me because I referred to Social Security as dysfunctional. And you looked at me and said, you know what? It's not really dysfunctional. I think this is the way it's designed to work. So tell me, let's let's go into that a little bit. Tell me about uh, when I say, you know, that the perception amongst many reps is that Social Security is very dysfunctional. Cases take a long time to be decided. The time frame is, you know, 18 months, two years, sometimes longer. It seems dysfunctional to me, but you have a different perspective on that. Talk about that if you can. I do. I think it's functioning actually exactly as Congress and the agency intend to work. The Social Security system was originally designed to be a retirement-only system where you pay in for 40 years and then maybe only collect benefits for a few years between retirement age and the average time, the average lifespan. Now with the disability system, people are, anyone who's found disabled, they're paying in a lot less and then they're collecting benefits much earlier than age 66, 67 
retirement age. So if too many people do that, it financially destabilizes the entire social security system. So when social security says, you're all gonna pay into the system, but don't worry, the benefits will be there if you need them. If you become disabled and unable to work, SSDI will be there for you. I don't actually think they intend that. I think that social security puts up barriers at every stage of the process to prevent people from accessing the benefits that they should deserve, that they do deserve. And the timelines that you talked about, that's one barrier. Having to go see consultative examiner that's being paid by social security to give social security an opinion that you're not disabled, that's a barrier. The definition of disability is its own barrier because it's so strict you have to have evidence that you can do any work in the national economy that exists in significant numbers, and it has to be for a full 12 months, which means if there's any gaps in your medical record, a judge can say, oh, that's not a full 12 months, or, oh, looks like you could maybe be a cashier. There's a million of those jobs. So all of these things, I think, are put there intentionally to design this program where only the people who are quote unquote, air quotes, the most disabled can access the benefits, but other people who may have non-visible conditions like mental health conditions or fibromyalgia or connective tissue disorder, they're perceived to be somehow less needy or less worthy of benefits. And I think that's why over 70% of people excluded at the initial level. It, it's just not a program that's really there for the people who are told the program will be there for them. And of course, a lot of that's because people who are disabled don't have a lobby. They don't have lobbyists, you know, paying money to Congress people and, and, right. and so forth. And so there's really no, nobody there to really support people who are, they're just, they're just, I think you use the comment that uh, disabled people are the, are the one group that you can discriminate against. Yeah. It's legal yeah. discrimination. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if you think about it, we're telling people in, in a healthcare and economic system where people get their health insurance work, and when they can't work and they lose their health insurance and they can't afford treatment, and yet we're still telling them they have to get treatment to get disability benefits because they can't work. Yeah. It makes no sense. And I can't tell you how many times a judge has told me we're denying a case because the person didn't have medical records. And in the hearing, the judge says to the person, oh, you don't have medical records. I guess you didn't need treatment. Mm -hmm. You must be able to work. And then as the decision writer, I'm told, use that logic to deny the claim. When, of course, I know they it's didn't money. get treatment. They couldn't afford it and had no insurance. Right. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. You know, you mentioned barriers. I mean, a couple others, you know, one is they send you. Well, I'll tell you one I just saw just today. I had a client who did not return the signed application. And so they just basically put the case into, you know, administrative, you know, never, never land. And they eventually dismissed it because she never worked. She filed her application. We filed it for her. They, she never signed it and sent it back. They didn't remind her, you know, she didn't yeah. know. Um, and and know. there's so many forms Yeah, forms, and they'll just right. keep sending them to you. They'll lose right. them and send them to you again. Right. You have to sign in. You have to, you have to cooperate. You have to go to a consultative exam. Yep. You have to go to a second consultative exam and a reconsideration. You have to go to two more consultative right. exams. And they know that the more they require of people, the more opportunities there are for this person who's sick, pain, has 
mental health difficulties, doesn't have transportation, doesn't have money maybe to eat, put gas in their car. They know that at some point, if they put enough barriers in that person's way, that person's going to get tripped up by something. Yeah. And yeah. that keeps people out of the system. And more that Social Security can do to keep you from even asking for benefits and and go forth with your, your claim and having your hearing. Like if the more people they can get out of that system as early as possible, then the fewer people they'll have who make it all the way through. And so therefore, you know, the fewer claims that they approve and, and the less money that goes out the door. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, unfortunately, I really think it's designed that way. And that was one of my main motivations for writing the book, Social Security Disability Revealed. It says it right in the subtitle. I want people to understand why it's so hard to access benefits, what all of these barriers are, but also what you can do about it. Because I believe that if you understand where social security is intentionally trying to trip you up along the way you can really be your best advocate and you can put forth work with a qualified representative you can put forth the best possible case to give yourself the best possible chance of success don't know where to begin get my free secrets to getting approved survival kit inside the kit i discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to avoid common mistakes? And my ever popular, how to avoid trick questions from the judge. Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay, act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. So, so what are some practical things that people can do not to get tripped up uh, by these barriers? Uh, that, that they see? And, and I, my sense is that some of these are intentional and some of these are just a function of a very big bureaucracy, but the net effect is the same, that it does, yeah. definitely creates barriers. What are some things that people can do to avoid getting tripped up and stuck in purgatory where, you know, nobody, no, there's nothing going on. Nobody will tell you anything. You can't get the information. And right. And lo and behold, you know, eight months later, 10 months later, you, you call up and, oh, your case was dismissed administratively. What can right. we do? What can, what can we do as reps? What can claimants do if they're doing this on their own? What are some things they can do to kind of fight this, uh, fight this system? Well, I'm going to start with what you just said. If claimants are doing this on their own, I have seen thousands of cases saw a lot of cases where people were unrepresented and I can say unequivocally there is a huge difference in the quality of the evidence and the quality of the case presentation between people who get a qualified professional representative those who try and do it on their own I have a chapter in the book where I say don't DIY this if you wouldn't fill your own cavity mm -hmm. if you wouldn't rebuild your car engine handle your own legal seating mm -hmm. uh i just i've seen situations where people who actually maybe had a decent case and they just they said something or did something that they shouldn't have because they didn't have a representative representing their interests in the book i actually provide an example of someone who if she has a representative she wins her case 
but because she doesn't, she says something she shouldn't and loses her case. And that could be tens of thousands of dollars of benefits. Mm -hmm. The first thing, first thing is you want to have a representative, but the representatives, as you know, of course, you're very busy people. It's a volume business. You don't get paid very much per case. You only get paid if the claimants get an, uh, an approval. So the claimants cannot rely on the representative for everything. The big thing is the claimants have to educate themselves and, and have to have a good support system that's also educating themselves. Because a lot of people have physical impairments. Maybe they can't be on the phone with their doctor. Maybe they can't drive somewhere and get their medical records. They may have mental health impairments where they focus or concentrate or interact with others. So you have to educate yourself on the process. You know what's going to happen. You know all the steps. But also you have to have a really good support system who are doing that with you so that if, that if something happens and you can't advocate for yourself, you have a friend or family member who can advocate on your behalf. And I think that's really, that's really the secret sauce is knowing the process, knowing the next steps in the process so that you don't let Social Security trip you up something. You want to know what's going to happen. And of course, you want to also have a professional representative who knows the rules, the procedures, the deadlines, and the judges in your local hearing office. And from my perspective of someone who, as you said, has reviewed thousands of medical records and heard thousands of hearings, I think that's really the open secret to success is educate yourself and work with a professional representative to present the best case possible. All right. Now, one of the thick questions I get a lot from people who are reaching out to me either just for information or because they're, they're thinking about hiring a rep, how do I get approved early? I mean, this process can take forever. It can take, you know, a year and a half, two years. And yeah. the way I look at it is you're sitting there looking at the four walls for two years, hoping Social Security does its thing. You know, what can you, is there anything specific that comes to mind that somebody can do to improve their chances at winning early? And, you know, whether it's a physical issue or a mental health issue, right. what, are, what are things that somebody can do to, to move the process along? And the unfortunate thing is, as we've talked about, the that 70% or more of claimants are denied at the initial level, I don't think that's an accident. I think to some extent, the system is designed that way. That's one of the barriers, right? And some people give up and don't appeal. But there's other barriers there. For example, no matter how good your medical record is, Social Security will send you to a consultative examiner at the initial level who Social Security is paying that person essentially to tell Social Security you can work. Mm. And these consultative examiners, they know what Social Security wants and they know who's signing their paycheck and they know where their cases come from. So they know exactly what to put in those opinions, regardless of how disabled you might appear. But there's also conflict of interest at the initial level because at the initial level, it's state agency examiners that decide cases. And yet, the states work with the federal government to administer the Medicaid program, right? So the more people find disabled for SSI, maybe the more people go on the state's Medicaid program. Which so problems. there's also this huge co conflict of interest, right? Where the, mm -hmm. the states half find SSI applicants not disabled or it might cost the state a lot of money. So that's all the doom and gloom at the initial level. 
but some are approved, right? About three out of 10 are approved. And I actually know someone who was approved at the initial level. And it just takes an enormous amount of medical evidence. The person I know had a very traumatic injury. It was not something that was chronic or happened over time. It was, you know, one time thing, they were fine and then they weren't and emergency room, surgeries, couple thousand pages of hospital bills, super well organized, of course, tons of information because, you know, they were hospitalized for a couple months. That's the kind of case that can get paid at the initial level. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a deteriorating back condition or anxiety and depression, not trying to minimize those impairments, but it can be difficult to get treatment, consistent treatment. And remember, got to be for a full 12 months so right. if you go a month without treatment the agency can say aha that wasn't full continuous months so it really is like the worst of the worst cases that have the most medical evidence that get approved initially unfortunately that's just not most people even if your condition is bad enough to prevent you from working it still may not get approved at the initial or the reconsideration. Right. I I think, I mean, my experience has been an initial and recon, the level of evidence you have to have is maybe way up here, but you know, you get in front of a judge, it doesn't have to be quite that high, but you've got to be, you know, at, uh, you have a life limiting condition, something that is really, really, really severe. And I think again, back to the barriers concept, you know, a lot of people just give up. I mean, they get they 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 get denied and they get really angry. I've had people tell, I just crumbled that piece of paper up and threw it away. They get angry because they they get this form letter saying you can still work when they like, no, I can't. But yeah, got it. Or, to, or jobs that make no sense, right? Yeah. Like or jobs that they've never heard of before, yep. like elevator operator, right. photocopy machine operator. These aren't real jobs in 2022. Yep. Um yeah, it can be really distressing to know that you've got a medical impairment and know you want and know that you can't. And yet some bureaucrat in a state office in your state capital who's never met you is citing a doctor who maybe never met you, who, who was paid by Social Security specifically to say that you can work. It really does seem like everything is just set up against you. And like I said, I actually think to some extent that is intentional mm-hmm. now, but you said, once you get to the hearing level, things change and you're totally right. Things do change because those judges are hired by social security, but they're federal judges that conflict of interest at the state level. That's not there anymore. And a lot of times people will hire representatives such as yourself who, like I've said, know the system, know the rules and know the judges. Because you can't choose, I talk in the book about how there are a lot of things you can't control. You can't choose who your judge is. You could be assigned a low-paying judge who pays 20% of your cases. But professional representatives know how to work in that landscape. Mm. And the thing is, with a judge who pays 20% of their cases, they're still paying one out of five. Mm-hmm. And, and your representative in your local community knows what that one out of five is and knows what kind of story to tell and knows how to present your information to be that one out of five. And that's why it's so important that you understand the process, but also that you hire someone who really knows what they're doing. Because from from my experience, and I've written a lot of denial, I've written a lot of approvals, 
and the low paying judges to approve cases, they do it when they don't have any room for discretion to deny a case. And that's what you want. You want to work with a representative and put together a medical record that leaves that judge new, no room for discretion, such that after that hearing, they sit down with the attorney advisor decision writer and they say, just pay it and move on. We'll deny the next four. This we just can't deny. There's, wow. just no, there's no way I'm going to do it. I'm not going to get myself in trouble. We'll pay that one and move on. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.